Recorded live. In our study of uh, the doctrines of grace, and as you are probably aware, there are five doctrines of grace. It begins with man, and with the first one, and then the last four deal with God. Um, radical corruption, that is our ruin in sin, and that is what we looked at at the beginning uh, of our conference last night that the entirety of man, and that's what total depravity means. It does not mean that every person is as totally depraved as they could possibly be. It means that the totality of their personhood has been plagued by sin. Their mind is darkened uh, by sin such that they are unable to see the truth. Uh, Their affections uh, are defiled by sin and they do not desire the truth, and their will is plagued by sin and is bound by sin and is unable to come to Christ. And so mind, affections, and will, and the totality of that is, they are dead in trespasses and sin. They cannot see the truth. They cannot hear the truth. uh, They cannot believe the truth. Uh, That is the devastating effect of the human race. So if anyone is to be saved, if anyone is to be in Christ, God must take the initiative. And God must do more than just take the initiative. God must choose those who cannot choose for themselves. And God must send his son to die for their sins upon the cross. And God must send the Holy Spirit to awaken them and convict them and draw them and birth them into the kingdom of heaven and grant to them gifts of repentance and faith. It is all a work of grace. And the only thing we provide in our salvation is the sin that was laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And then all whom he brings to himself, he preserves in his grace uh, the eternal security of the believer, and they will continue to pursue godliness, the perseverance of the saints. So there is total depravity or radical corruption. That's man's part. The next three deal with the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There is unconditional election. That's God the Father. Definite atonement. That's God the Son. And then sovereign regeneration. That is God the Holy Spirit. Each person of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, work together in perfect unity and harmony to one, um, to one end, which is the salvation of a people that is the chosen bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the final um, doctrine of grace, Father, Son, and Spirit work together to preserve these who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. So, the question for us in this session is very simply this, for whom did Christ die? And by way of introduction, um, I want to ask the question, um, what did Jesus accomplish in his death upon the cross? Uh, You tell me what Christ accomplished, and I will tell you for whom he died. In other words, The intent of the cross defines the extent of the cross. 
did Jesus die for those who were already in hell? Uh, what purpose would it have been to have laid down his life and to bear the sins of those already in hell? Um, does, is, does any drop of the blood of Christ fail to um, achieve the purpose for which he sacrificed himself? Did he die in vain for any for whom he died? Or was it a triumphant death upon the cross in that for all those for whom he died, he actually secured their salvation? And the issue really boils down to Jesus at the cross, did he merely make man savable or did he actually save? Did he merely make God potentially propitiated or did Jesus actually propitiate the righteous anger of God? That's the issue on the table. Uh, Did Jesus merely provide a potential reconciliation dependent upon man's response between holy God and sinful man or did Jesus Christ actually reconcile holy God and sinful man together? If so, and if he died for all, then all will be reconciled and there will be none in hell. So I want to walk through this with you. This is usually the most challenging of the five doctrines of grace, but um, perhaps I can lay this out in a manner that is helpful uh, for you to see. So I want to begin in John chapter 1. If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 1. I hope by the end of this conference your Bible just automatically opens to the Gospel of John. Worst things could happen. Um, John chapter 1. And I want to begin with what would be considered maybe the most difficult of the verses uh, to address. Um, This is the first mention of the cross in the Gospel of John, and it begins at its broadest level of of terminology. John the Baptist sees the Lord Jesus as he approaches his baptism in the River Jordan, and John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So the question is, for whom did Christ die? Uh, First, some historical background Uh, for this statement, which is the Old Testament Levitical sacrificial system which all pointed ahead to Christ. Um, In the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system, Christ is represented as both the sacrifice that is offered as well as the high priest who makes this sacrifice. And specifically here, the the background is the Day of Atonement. Leviticus chapter 16, there were two sacrifices that were made. The first was a blood sacrifice in which the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat and God's Son is pictured in that as placating or satisfying or appeasing the righteous anger of God towards sin. But there was a second sacrifice and it was the scapegoat in which the high priest laid his hand, uh, hands on the scapegoat and it pictured what would one day take place at Calvary's cross where there would be the transferring of the sins of the people 
to the innocent sacrifice. The scapegoat would then be released into the wilderness, never to be seen again. And this pictured all the sins of God's people being transferred to Christ and him taking them far, far away that our sins would never be seen again. The rest of the Bible affirms this, that he's taken our sins and buried them in the sea of God's forgetfulness. He's taken our sins and placed them behind his back where he can see them no more. Uh, He has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. It was a perfect sacrifice that Jesus made when he offered himself up upon the cross. Now, three observations that I want to make regarding this verse as it relates to for whom did Christ die. The first is, this was a real or actual taking away of sin. Uh, Please note the language of what John the Baptist said. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not potentially takes away the sins of the world, contingent upon men actually believing on, upon him. No, this was, there was a definite transaction with definite results. All for whom he died, he took away their sins. James Montgomery Boyce writes, Jesus did not merely come to make salvation possible, but actually to save his people. He did not come to make redemption possible. He died to redeem his people. He did not come to make propitiation possible. He actually turned aside God's wrath for each of his elect people forever. Boyce continues, he did not come to make reconciliation between God and man possible. He actually reconciled to God those whom the Father had given to him. He did not come merely to make atonement for sins possible, but actually atoned for sin. So please note the language that John the Baptist uses. There was a a definite transaction with a definite result. The Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. I want to tell you, for all for whom he died, he took away their sins. He died a victorious death. He did not die in frustration. He he did not die in disappointment. He, He died in glorious victory. And all for whom he died, he took away their sin. Now, if Jesus died for all, then therefore you are left with universalism that all will be saved in the end. If he took away their sins, there is no more sin left on them. But the fact is that Jesus died for a specific group of people. He took away all of their sin. So number one, it was, I want you to note, the language that John uses here, it was a real and actual taking away of sin. Second, in the Old Testament, the Levitical sacrifice was made only on behalf of God's people, not the whole world. Uh, In the sacrificial system, there was not a sacrifice being made for the Canaanites. There was not a sacrifice being made for the Egyptians. 
There was not a sacrifice being made for the Assyrians, nor for the Babylonians. It was a sacrifice in the Levitical system that was made exclusively for the people of God. And what John is saying here, that he takes away the sin of the world, he is saying that in the death of Christ, it is a death not only for the elect in Israel, but for the elect in the entire world. In other words, both Jews and non-Jews, for both Jews and Gentiles. So here is an atonement that reaches beyond Israel to people out of every tribe and out of every tongue and every nation and people. The third thing I would want you to know about this verse deals with the word world. So often when someone reads the Bible who is maybe new to the Bible or who has not sat under careful expository preaching, whenever they see the word world, they immediately automatically jump to the conclusion that whenever the Bible uses the word world, that it must mean every person in the world. And that is uh, a naive understanding of the Bible. Uh, the word world, cosmos, is, is a word that is used most by John in his writings. Uh, the word is used 185 times in the New Testament, and 78 of the 185 are found in the Gospel of John. By contrast, eight times in Matthew, three times in Mark, and only three times in Luke, but 78 times in the Gospel of John. And when you throw in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, as well as the book of Revelation, you add another uh, 27 times and so this is a word that is predominantly used, not by Matthew, Mark, or Luke, but by John. So with such a broad use, uh, multiplicity of use of this word, uh, the question then is, so what does John mean when he says the word world? And it would be important for us to understand this morning that in the Gospel of John, the word world is used ten different ways. And only one of those ten would mean the entire human race. So it would be very um, naive to rush into any passage and immediately assume that the word means every person. I'll just quickly walk you through these, and if you want to jot these down, that's great. The first use means the entire universe. Sometimes when John uses cosmos, he means the entire universe. John 1.10, the world was made through him. And that refers to the entirety of the created order, the sun, the moon, the planets, uh, the vast universe, the solar system, as well as uh, this earth. Uh, the second time is the physical earth. Uh, in John 13.1, we read, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. It doesn't mean he departed out of the human race as though he lost his humanity. That's heresy. No, it just means he left planet Earth to return to heaven. Uh, the third way it's used in the Gospel of John is the world system. 
uh, to refer to the organized evil system over which Satan rules as the God of this age. John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Well, the ruler of this world, Satan is not the ruler of the planet, and he's not the ruler of the universe. He is the ruler of, a, of an evil conspiracy, of an invisible war against God and against Christ. Fourth use is all humanity minus believers. So, all humanity minus uh, believers. Uh, John 7, verse 7, Jesus said, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Well, the entire human race does not hate the disciples. It's only the unbelievers that hate the disciples. So in this case, and there are others, uh, John 15, 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. That does not refer to every single person on the planet. It only refers to unbelievers who hated Christ and who hated the disciples. Fifth use of the word world, and I think it's really worth our taking a few moments here to walk through this. Um, it just simply means a large group. Um, world can refer to a large portion of a group. It can mean the population of a small region of the world. Uh, John 12, 19, it's, uh, the Pharisee says, look, the whole world has gone after him. Well, that wasn't true. If you take it as every single person in the entire history of the world, people who were not yet born did not go after the Lord Jesus. And of those who were born, the, the Eskimos did not go after Jesus. Uh, the Aztec Indians did not go after Jesus. The Incas did not go after Jesus. The Native Americans in America did not go after Jesus. The word world here, the whole world's gone after him, simply means it's a large group. It doesn't mean every single person in the world. It's just a large group. Then six, it can refer to general public. The general public as distinguished from a private group, a public group as opposed to uh, a private group. Uh, the brothers of Jesus said to him in John 7, verse 4, For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Well, what Jesus' brothers were saying is, show yourself in the open public. Go to Jerusalem Go into the temple area, perform these miracles, show yourself to the world. Well, that doesn't mean that he, was showing, he would be showing himself to everyone in South America and South Africa, that everyone in Australia and, and New Zealand, that he would be showing himself to them. Uh, that, that, that would be, um, obviously, an unwise interpretation in handling a scripture. So the word world can simply mean a, a large public group. Uh, Seventh, it can refer to Jews and Gentiles um, together. In other words, beyond just Israel, but to be inclusive of other nations. For example, in John 4, verse 42, the Samaritan woman, um, after she came to a saving knowledge of Christ, remember she went back into the city and told them about a man who had told her everything she had ever done, 
And she then said, he is the Savior of the world. Well, if he's the Savior of the world and you take world to mean every single person in the entire history of the world, then hell will be empty and Jesus will be the Savior of the world. No, that's not how she meant it. She, she meant it that she a Samaritan who is outside the commonwealth of Israel, that salvation has come to her and she has gone into the Samaritan village and testified of the Lord Jesus to them who are outside of Israel. You remember the Samaritans were, in essence, half-breed. They were half-Jew, half-Assyrian. They had been, when the Jews were taken off to Assyria in the Assyrian captivity, they co-mingled and co-married, and there was a, a mongrel race, if you will. There, there was a, a race that was half-Jew, half-Assyrian that now occupied this land of the Samaritans. And so her exuberance was that salvation has gone beyond the borders of Israel, that there is grace for someone like her who is not a full Jew. And so that is why she says he is the Savior of the world, meaning there are not national boundaries to this salvation. So the word can refer to both Jews and Gentiles. It can refer, A, to the human realm. Uh, the word world can describe the, just the realm of mankind as contrasted with the realm of heaven or the realm of angelic beings. In John 1, verse 10, it says he was in the world. That, that the idea there is he, was, he wasn't in heaven. He was, he was in the world, the human realm. Um, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Um, he entered into the human realm. He was in the world, and the world did not, the world which he had made, and the world did not recognize him. Ninth, the word can refer simply to just the non-elect. Not, not the elect, but the non-elect. So that's a, 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 a sub-compartment of every human being. And that's how he used the word when he prayed in John 17, verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. So there's a contrast between them and the world. He's drawn a line in the sand. There is the them and there is the world. And the them refers to all the elect. The world, therefore, thus refers to the non-elect. And then, in, uh, then a tenth use would be uh, the elect only, John 3:17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The intent of the Father in sending Christ into this broad human realm was to save the world of the elect. So these are the ten different uses of the word world. If you care for a fuller treatment in my book, Foundations of Grace, I have all ten of these listed. So just a careful Bible student, Number one, will be aware of the, of the diversity of uses of the word cosmos in the Gospel of John alone. So the question is, which is it in John 1, verse 9? When he says he will take away the sins of the world, is he talking about taking away the sin of the universe, the planet? Uh, what is he referring to? And the reference here is for world, not only Jews, but also Gentiles. 
Uh, Jesus died not only for those in the nation Israel, but he died also for believers outside the nation wherever they would be found. And the reason that we take that option is because um, in his death, he actually took away the sins of the world. That is true only of those who will believe. And the only ones who believe are those who are chosen by the Father and given to the Son and who will believe in Christ. So that, that's where we begin. Second, if you'll come to chapter 3, I want you to see that it was not only an actual atonement or a real atonement as opposed to a potential or hypothetical, but second, I want you to see that it was an, an international atonement. Um, beginning in verse 14, as Jesus lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And you're no doubt familiar with this passage in Numbers 21 where God sent serpents to bite the people of God and to inflict their deadly poison uh, into them because of their rebelliousness. And the people were dying. And so God, out of his mercy and by his grace, told Moses to make a brass serpent and put it on a pole and to lift it up and everyone who looks to the brass serpent will, will, will be healed, will be saved from this deadly poison. The brass serpent pictured Christ upon the cross. Uh, the serpent represents sin. Brass represents judgment. And a brass serpent is a picture of God's judgment upon sin or sin under judgment. And that's what took place at the cross. Our sins were transferred to Christ and as he bore our sins in his body, he died in our place, and God poured out his wrath, deserving us. It fell upon Christ, and he suffered what you and I would suffer in an eternity in hell. He suffered in that compressed period of time upon the cross. And he became sin under judgment. He bore our sin and suffered our judgment upon Calvary's cross. And so that is what it was picturing. At the end of verse, uh, or in verse 15, he says, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And so Jesus died to save all who believe upon him. Then verse 16, the very famous verse, for God so loved the world. And the world here I take to mean not every single person in the world, but the world what we would say at large, meaning both Jews and non-Jews, or, or all kinds of people, both Jews and Gentiles. God so loved the world, the general realm of humanity, that he gave his only begotten, begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And so... The question is, in verse 16, is it to be taken that Jesus died for every sin of every person who would ever live? And many take it that way, and I live the first part of my Christian life uh, thinking that that is what it meant. But let's give more careful thought to this. 
If Jesus died for every person who ever lived and bore their sins, even for the non-elect, even for the unbelievers who will be in hell, then we would have to say he died for the sin of unbelief, for their sin of unbelief, right? And if Jesus died for the sin of unbelief of unbelievers, then how could God hold that against them if Jesus died for the sin of unbelief? Well, the reality is, or the truth is, Jesus did not die for all the sins of all people. He died for all the sins of some people, and he never died for the sins of those who would never believe in him. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon um, helped, helps us in our understanding of this. Um, he preached a sermon on January 14, 1855, when he was only 20 years old, um, called The Sin of Unbelief. And in that sermon, Spurgeon said, quote, There is one sin for which Christ never died. It is the sin against the Holy Ghost. There is one sin for which Christ never made atonement. Mention every crime in the calendar of evil, and I will show you persons who have, been, who have found forgiveness for it. So he is saying, for prostitutes, for tax collectors, for thieves, for robbers, for, for homosexuals, for effeminate, for lesbians, there, there has been made an atonement for those sins and there are people in the kingdom of heaven who have been saved out of those sins through the blood of Christ. And Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 6 and, and verse 9 to the Corinthian church when he gave that catalog of sin. He goes, and such were some of you. But Spurgeon now continues this quote, But ask me whether the man who died in unbelief can be saved, and I replied, there is no atonement for that man. There is an atonement made for the unbelief of a Christian because it is temporary. But the final unbelief, the unbelief with which men die, never was atoned for. You may turn over this whole book and you will find that there is no atonement for the man who died in unbelief. There is no mercy for unbelief. Close quote. A.W. Pink also is insightful in which, in which he writes, If all the sins of all men were laid upon Christ, then the sin of unbelief was too. That unbelief is a sin, which is clear from the fact that 1 John 3.23 we read, and this is the commandment that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. Refusal to believe in Christ is therefore an act of flagrant disobedience. It is rebellion against the most high. But if all the sins of all men were laid upon Christ, as it is now asserted by many, then he also endured the penalty for the Christ rejecter's unbelief. If this is so, then universalism is true. But it is not so. The very advocates of the view we are now refuting would not affirm it. And therein may, may be seen the inconsistency and untenableness of their teaching. 
For if unbelief is a sin and Christ did not suffer the penalty of it, then all sin was not laid upon Christ. Thus, there are only two alternatives. A strictly limited atonement availing only for believers or an unlimited atonement which effectually secures the salvation of the entire human race. Close quote. So, what these great men are arguing is, I think, the proper handling of all of Scripture that Christ laid down his life for those whom the Father gave to him as a result of election in eternity past. Come, if you would, to John chapter 6 in verse 37 through 39, and I want you to see that it was an exact atonement. Uh, Jesus died in perfect obedience to the will of God the Father in order to save the elect. In John chapter 6, verse 37, which we looked at last night, I want us to look at it again through the lens of the atonement. We see in John 6, 37, Jesus saying, all that the Father gives me. We noted last night that this refers to the elect. It can only refer to the elect. They were the Father's possession by sovereign choice, and then he gave this group to the Son. And he says, they will come to me. Uh, Please note the the certainty, the absolute certainty of this. All that the Father gives me, every single one of them will come to me. No more, no less. Now, in verse 38, he began to talk about it is these for whom he laid down his life. It is for these that he came to save. Not the entire human race, but for those whom the Father gave to him. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is saying that the Father has given a specific assignment to the Son, and the Son is not free to come to his own thing as he comes into this world. He will be in strict obedience to the Father to carry out the Father's saving mission here in, upon the earth. And there will be perfect unity. It's a very important point. Perfect unity between the Father and the Son. In other words, the Father will not choose one group to be saved, and the Son will then go in his own direction and lay down his life for a different group. There is perfect unity in the Godhead. And those whom the Father chose and gave to the Son, these will be the very same ones whom the Son will lay down his life for. Uh, Several years ago, I was in London um, and spent the night at London Theological Seminary, which is the seminary that was founded by Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I woke up the next morning and went down to have breakfast with the student body and talked to different ones. And unknown to me, there was a conference that was being held at that time in which the leading authority um, on John Owen was lecturing on campus. And uh, specifically, volume 10 of John Owen, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. And so as these pastors and students were sitting at the table with me, and I with them, I asked them, all right, give me the number one reason to believe in death and atonement. Throw down the ace of spades. Tell me the principal reason 
to hold to definite atonement, our particular redemption. And they immediately said this, which is the argument of what we're looking at. The unity of the Godhead. The unity of the Trinity. That God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit act as one Savior. And if you hold to a universal atonement and hold to the doctrine of election, you have created a fracture in the Godhead and have divided the saving work of the Father from the saving work of the Son and put them at cross purposes. Because the Father has chosen his elect. The Father has not chosen all in the world. He has chosen out of the world those whom he will save. If you then say that Christ has died for all, you have the Father and the Son working to save two different groups of people. Then when you throw in the Holy Spirit um, at, to, to teach something less than sovereign regeneration, you actually have the Holy Spirit attempting to save a third group or a totally different group, all those who actually hear the gospel. Not everyone hears the gospel. You understand that. But only those who come under the sound of the gospel would the Holy Spirit, according to their view, be tugging on their heart or wooing their heart. So you have three different groups, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that they are trying to save. The Father is intending to save only the elect, but Christ intending to save every single person laying down a, a universal atonement, and then the Holy Spirit, a halfway house between those two, uh, attempting to save only those who hear the sound of the gospel, some of which, re some of whom reject the gospel. Well, Jesus said in John 10, verse 30, the Father and I are one. And that does not mean one person. It means we are of one purpose, one mission. We are of one intent. They are one in their saving purpose. And so for that reason, the Father has chosen the elect, he has given them to the Son, and commissioned the Son to come into this world and to lay down his life for the very same group of people. That is what Jesus is alluding to here in verse 38 of John 6. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So what do you think the will of him is who sent Christ. The next verse tells us that Jesus was not a maverick Messiah off doing his own thing. He, he wasn't a, a disobedient son or a wayward son. No, he worked in strict compliance with the will of the Father, which was to save those whom he gave to the Son. So look at verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me. This is the eternal, sovereign will of the Father. And what he will be talking about here in the will of the Father, he's not referring to Jesus is supposed to be in Gal Galilee on Thursday, and then Friday get in a boat and go across the sea, and then by the weekend he's supposed to be in Jerusalem. That's not what he's talking about. When he says the will of the Father, he is talking about the saving will of God. He is talking about the eternal, sovereign grace of God. So he says in verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, 
that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. Why did Jesus come into this world? Why did Jesus lay down his life at the cross? Answer, that he would lose not a one whom the Father gave to him. So secure is this salvation that at the end of verse 39, he says, and I raise it up on the last day. Jesus has tunnel vision here, if you will. He has myopic focus. He has singular focus. His eye is upon those whom the Father has given to him. And it will be these he will lose, not a one. It will be these whom he will raise up on the last day. It will be these for whom he lays down his life. This was the mission of Christ coming into the world. That's why I said in the introduction, you tell me why he came and I'll tell you what he did. The reason that he came was in strict obedience to the Father to save those whom the Father had given to him. Come to John chapter 10 and verse 11, and the, the focus, I think, becomes comes even more into tight um, view. I want you to see in John 10, it is an exclusive atonement. In John 10, verse 11, and as we're going through the Gospel of John, it's like this. It's like the focus is becoming tighter and tighter and tighter. It starts at its broadest. He takes away the sins of the world, referring to Jew and non-Jew, and then the focus is becoming tighter and tighter. And as now we come to John 10 and verse 11, it's like when I take an eye exam and they put the letters up on the wall and they dial in the prescription that I need, things are becoming more clear or clearer and clearer and clearer. That's what's happening in the Gospel of John. And so now in John 10 and verse 11, it is, it is abundantly clear. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The word good here means excellent and noble. I am the good shepherd. And what does a good shepherd do? Well, the good shepherd cares for and protects those entrusted to him. If he did not do that, he would not be a good shepherd. So, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the, for the sheep. Well, the sheep are those who were chosen by the Father to be his. The sheep are those who enter through the door into the sheepfold. Uh, the sheep are those that he calls by name. They're his sheep. Now, let me just tell you several things about the sheep in this context. We know regarding these sheep for whom he laid down his life, we know in verse 3 above that the sheep are those who are called individually by name by Christ. It's not an anonymous group. It's not a blob of people. It's not a whosoever. It is a specific number with a specific individual name. The sheep are called individually by name by Christ. Second thing I would have you note is in verse 20, uh, 
verse 27, the sheep are those who recognize the voice of the shepherd, and they will come to him. Verses 3 and 4 also teach this. So Christ's sheep are those who recognize the voice of the shepherd and come to Christ and follow him. Third, these sheep are not only among Jews, but there are other sheep from another fold. Verse 16, Jesus says, I have other sheep, and that is reference to Gentiles, beyond the commonwealth of Israel. Jesus has sheep outside the national borders or boundaries of, of Israel, and it refers to Gentiles. Fourth, I would have you know that not everyone is one of the Lord's sheep. We, we see in verse 26, that's very clear. Uh, Jesus says, the reason that you don't believe is you're not one of my sheep. So very obviously, not everyone is one of Jesus' sheep. Verse 29, fifth, he identifies the sheep as those who are given by the Father to the Son. This refers to those whom the Father chose. So, question, for whom did Christ lay down his life? Well, he laid down his life for those whom the Father gave to him. He laid down his life for those he calls by name. He laid down his life for those who hear his voice. He laid down his life for those who come to him by faith. He laid down his life for those who follow him Yet there are, not everyone is one of his sheep, verse 26. So it becomes clear this is an exclusive atonement. Notice verse 15. This is so important that Jesus repeats it. And one thing you need to know about this sermon, too, Jesus was not preaching to the choir. Uh, this, he was not giving this to everyone who was in agreement with him. John 10 is an extension of John 9, and the huge controversy uh, after Christ has healed the the blind man and provoked uh, strong resistance against him by the spiritual leaders of Israel, Jesus is now delineating these doctrines of grace. This isn't a Wednesday night crowd where it's a safe group to, to preach this to. Uh, Jesus is pulling this out in the open and showcasing this really to those who are his enemies. So for those who say, well, we should only preach this in-house, that doesn't even match up with the ministry of, of Christ himself. So verse 15, Jesus now cinches the knot. Jesus tightens the screw. Jesus anchors this with yet another nail being driven down regarding those for whom he died. And in verse 15, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. That's as intimate and close and united of a relationship as there can be. Jesus then, at the end of verse 15, in that context says, and I lay down my life for the sheep. You know what Jesus is saying? I know the Father. The Father knows me. We are one. Who do you think I die for? I lay down my life for the sheep because I know the Father and the Father knows me. And because we are one, we work together in perfect unity and in perfect harmony in our saving 
mission of rescuing lost sinners. Jesus came to die for those whom the Father has chosen to save. Look at verse 16. Jesus said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, referring to Gentile sheep. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and I will become one flock with one shepherd. The, the Ephesians 2 talks about Christ removing the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile and making them one body. That's what his reference is. But now, note verse 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, verse 18. In other words, Jesus was not a victim. The circumstances did not get out of control. He came from heaven to die for his people. That was announced at his birth, Matthew 1.21. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So no one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Now, note the end of verse 18. This commandment I received from my Father. What commandment? The commandment to come into this world and to lay down his life for the sheep. Jesus came in obedience to the Father, in submission to the will of the Father. He has come for his sheep. He has come to lay down his life for the sheep. He has authority to lay it down. He has authority to take it back up again. And all of this is in obedience to the commandment that he received from the Father. I can never come to the Lord's Supper again the same way. Now that I understand how intentional Jesus was in dying for me on the cross, now that I see my name was written upon his heart, that he knew me and my name was written upon his heart, that as he went to the cross, he did not die simply anonymously or for an anonymous group of just everyone, but intentionally those whom the Father had given to him. How personal the atonement is to me. Um, how humbling this is that it was his intent in his death to save me. Now, if you would, look, if you will, at verse 27 in John 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. This is who the sheep are. This is for whom he died. And I give eternal life to them, not to the world, but to the sheep. And they will never perish. The world will perish, but the sheep will not perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. So we are held in the hand of the Savior, and then the hand of the Father is, in essence, encompassing the hand of the Savior. We are doubly secure in the hand of the Son and in the hand of the Father. And it would take someone greater than the Father to pry open his hand 
in, in order for us to be removed, but such is impossible, for none is greater than the Father. So verse 29, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. Listen, when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't go in his, his own way. He didn't take another path. He is one with the Father. And at the cross, He carried out the saving will of the Father, which is the salvation of the elect. While we're looking at this verse, let me give you just this bit. The word one, I and the Father are one, is not in the masculine. One is not in the masculine gender if it was, it would say, I and the Father are one person, or the meaning would be that. Well, that's heretical. That's modalism. Um, that's an early heresy in the early church. Instead, Jesus is very precise with his language. And the word one is in the neuter, which means one in mind, one in, one in will, one in mission, one in purpose. So, for whom did Christ die? He died for those whom the Father gave to him because he is one with the Father. Come to chapter 12, verse 32. John 12, verse 32. And I want you to see that it's, it was an effectual atonement. By effectual meaning there's a cause and effect, and the cause of the atonement produces a certain effect. All for whom Christ died will be drawn to him. John 12 and verse 32. And I, if I am lifted up, referring to lifted up upon the cross, if I am lifted up upon the earth, I, I've been in church services before where the pastor will say something like, well, if Christ is lifted up in the preaching of the word, he will draw all men to himself. That, that's not what this verse teaches. That, that's sloppy interpretation. The next verse, verse 33, makes it abundantly clear. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. So when Jesus says, if I am lifted up, he's not talking about the preaching of the gospel. He is talking about the death of the Savior. Now, notice what he goes on to say. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, and the idea is when you, when you were crucified, this goes back to the, in the inventors of crucifixion, that the one who is crucified, his feet will not even be touching the earth. So he is crucified in midair, as though suspended between heaven and earth. So that is the idea lifted up from the earth. It's not referring to the ascension. It's referring to the manner of his death. And again, verse 33 makes it clear. But notice, notice the effect of his death. If he is lifted up upon the cross, I will draw all men to myself. Now, we have only one of two options here. Either all means all without exception, or it means all without distinction. 
If it means all without exception, if, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself, then all men will be saved and no men will be in hell and all men will be in heaven. If you take all to mean all without exception, well, that's heretical because hell is a real place that God has created for Satan and his and his demons, but also for all who will die outside of Christ. So we must understand that the word all is sometimes used in the Bible to refer to not all without exception, but all without distinction, meaning all kinds of people, all types of people. And the context actually justifies this because here in John chapter 12 is the first time Greeks begin to come to seek after Christ. Earlier in verse 20 of John 12, now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip and said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus and Jesus now goes into this short discourse on the nature of his death. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's talking about the, the cross, his death. It is in this same context. In verse 27, my soul has become troubled for, for what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, referring to the hour of his death. No, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He's referring to the glory that the Father will receive through his death upon the cross. So when we look at verse 32, it becomes clear that the word all men is to be inclusive of all groups, both Jew and Greek mentioned in verse 20. Otherwise, if you take our Lord's words at face value, you are left with a universal atonement that leads to universal salvation. Well, such is heretical. It, it was a definite atonement that leads to the salvation of all those for whom he was lifted up to die. Verse 32 is a very important verse that must be addressed. Come to chapter 15, verse 13. I have just a couple more verses to, to set before you. But I, I think the nature of the atonement is very important. Paul says, we preach Christ and Him crucified. Um, Paul said, for I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's very important that we understand the saving death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And so I want you to note here it's a particular atonement. John 15, I want you to note verse 13, and Jesus continues now to tighten the focus and tighten um, the, our, our understanding for whom he laid down his life. John 13, greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his 
friends. To lay down his life is metaphorical language for the death of Christ upon the cross. I mean, we know that from John 10, that he's laid down his life for the sheep, referring to his death. Um, Here, he says he laid down his life for his friends. So we say, who are his friends? Isn't everyone in the world his friends? Well, no. Verse 14 tells us who his friends are. And you want to be one of his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Talking about a lifestyle of obedience to the Father. And all who are genuinely born again from above have been given a new heart and a new nature, and God has written His Word upon their heart. And they will now walk a new path, and they will now pursue obedience. No obedience, no going to heaven. Now, we're not saved by our obedience. But all who truly believe will live obedient lives to the Father. Not perfectly, but a new direction. So Jesus lays down his life for those whose lifestyle is marked by the habitual practice of obedience to his word. This is in sharp contrast to verse 18, where there are not only friends, but there are enemies. And the enemies are those who are of the world, who are hostile to those who are in the kingdom of God. So he says in verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. So there are the friends of Jesus, and there are the hostile enemies of the world against Jesus. For whom did he die? He laid down his life for his friends who once were enemies but who have been reconciled through the blood of his cross and brought into the family of God and made to be friends of Christ who will now walk the narrow path that leads to life. But taking John 15 at face value He laid down his life, verse 13, for his friends. His friends are those who are obedient to his commandments, verse 14, in total contrast to the world that hates Christ as well as hates the disciples, verse 19. For whom did Christ die? Not for the world that hates him, but he died for his friends who were chosen out of the world. In fact, he goes on to say that. Uh, Look at verse 19 before I let go of this passage. He says, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, that's for whom Christ died. Those whom he chose out of the world to be his friends. In verse 14. Verse 19 and verse 13 are inseparably bound together in our understanding of this. He chose certain ones out of the world, a world of hostility against him, to be made his friends. And verse 13, it is for these chosen friends that he has laid down his life. Well, finally, come to John 17 in verse 2. 
This is known as our Lord's high priestly prayer as he makes intercession before the Father on behalf of his people. This entire prayer is Jesus interceding with the Father on behalf of the elect, on behalf of those who are chosen. And he'll tell us bluntly in verse 9, I do not pray for the world. I pray for those whom you have given to me out of the world. So this whole prayer, he is riveted in his intercession before the Father on behalf of all of the elect and only the elect. So in verse 2, which we looked at last night, even as you, referring to the Father, gave him, he refers to himself humbly in third person, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that refers to all mankind, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. That's the intent of his death upon the cross. It was to give eternal life to those to whom you have given to him. It wasn't, he didn't die for all flesh. The first part of verse 2, he died to give eternal life to those whom you have given to him at the end of verse 2. Now, fast forward to verse 9. I ask on their behalf. Their refers to the elect. Their refers to those who have been given to him by the Father. I do not ask on behalf of the world. And here the world refers to the non-elect. But of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus makes intercession not for the world, but for those whom the Father has given to him. Now, understand this. He made intercession in this prayer for the elect. Right now, he is at the right hand of the Father making intercession only for the elect. Upon the cross, he made intercession for the same group. There is a consistency in his intercession. Upon the cross, he stood between the Father and us and he made intercession. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And upon the cross, Jesus made priestly intercession through the sacrifice of himself, and he made intercession for precisely the same people for, that he prayed for in this prayer, and for the same group that he is making intercession at this moment, at the right hand of the Father. There is a consistency between these three intercessions. Then look at verse 19. This is an important verse. For their sakes. That refers to the elect. For their sakes, as opposed to for the sake of the world. For their sake refers to those who were the fathers, and they were given to the Son. For their sakes, note this, I sanctify myself. That's a reference to his death upon the cross, that he sets himself apart unto the Father upon the cross. It was for their sakes. It was for the elect, for the same group, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Verse 19 is a very important verse. 
he sanctified himself unto the will of God in his death upon the cross, not for all flesh, verse 2, but for those whom you have given to me, verse 2, verse 6, verse 9, and now here. Finally, in verse 24, we see the final effect of this death of Christ upon the cross. It says, Father, at this point, there's a summation now of this prayer becomes intensely personal. Father, I desire that they, and that they refers, again, to those for whom Jesus prays, those for whom he dies. I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory. It's a reference to heaven which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. This begins in eternity past, and it ends in eternity future. And in, in, in eternity past, Jesus was foreknown by the Father, 1 Peter 1.20. He, he was the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world in the mind of the sovereign will of the Father, and it is for these he laid down his life at the cross so that one day these for whom he died will be around his throne in heaven and will sing the praises of his glory throughout all of the ages to come. So what John is saying is a very um, narrow focus a tight focus regarding those for whom he died. Spurgeon has put it this way. Everyone believes in a limited atonement. Either you believe that Jesus died and un, uh, died for a limited number of people, securing an unlimited blessing and effect, or... Jesus died for an unlimited number of people, but with a very limited effect. You either limit the extent or the effect. Even those who believe in a universal atonement limit the application of the cross to only believers. We have an unlimited application of what he did at the cross to the limited number of sheep for whom he laid down his life. He died in total victory. Not one drop of his blood was shed in vain. There was a transaction at the cross between the Father and the Son, and the Father and the Son bought his church at the cross he paid the price. He has received from the Father what he purchased, which is his church. If Jesus died for all, but only receives the church, then Jesus was shortchanged at the cross. There was an inequity at the cross. We would say in America, colloquially, Jesus was jipped at the cross. 
if he laid down his life for everyone and paid for everyone, but he only receives a limited number. In America, I don't know your coinage here, but in America it would be like I give you a dollar bill, but you only give me one quarter in return. It was not an equitable exchange. At the cross, it was a perfectly equitable exchange. Jesus received what he bought at the cross. And nothing for which no one for whom he died will not be given to him. Okay, that was Steve Lawson. It is Sovereignty of God, Session 3. Definite atonement for whom did Christ die? Question mark. And um, I will open up. Bones here, and I have to tell you, one heck of a message. One amazing message that I really can't find much fault. Now, I'm not promoting Steve Lawson. I don't know who he is, and being a man like the rest of us, I'm sure he's got full of faults. <laughs> but I have to say, the message that I heard in the past hour and 12 minutes is profoundly true. Is that you, Chris, or is that you, Walt? I'm here also, but I was interested in um, Chris's comments first. Yeah, if he's still there, he may have fell asleep on us. I, no, I don't no, know. I, I'm up, brothers. Uh, uh, he's well. He's He nailed it. I, I would say so. It could get him more truer. <laughs> no, he's well. You picked a winner. There. Yeah, I think uh, it right on. Really... Yeah. music to our ears, brothers. Isn't it music to our ears? Is it, it's a um, Michael is uh, did is he up on sermon audio? Uh, I have no idea. I, I let me see. Real quick. I, I put I put in an information box the YouTube channel and uh, and um, uh, you know I'm sure the man is as you say well he's fleshy and I'm sure there's things that we will find that we do disagree with but I have to say. What I heard the past hour and 20 minutes, so it was very hard to find anything to disagree with. What, was that an hour and 20 minutes? Hour and 12 minutes, excuse me. Hour and 12 minutes, mm-hmm. Yeah. And no, so, no I, I, I heard the same thing, and you, you, you know, and in other words, once, you, once God uh, opened, your, opened your eyes and your ears to this, I mean, it's all through the Bible, and it just, uh, I thought he did an excellent job on uh uh, yeah, yes, I think he did a wonderful job when it comes to God's sovereignty and election and who God is, who Jesus is, and his role in our lives. And uh, what it's amazing is that, uh, well, the, the inevitable question that comes in is it talks about uh, now knowing that you're one of the elect and you're one of God's chosen it's time to walk that straight and narrow path in obedience and I guess the next step is what does that mean for what does it mean? What is what does it mean by that walking in obedience? So 
because certainly he doesn't mean he doesn't he's not referring to going back to the old law and being burdened and tied up in legalism. So how do we walk in obedience in Christ, with Christ in Christ? Any any suggestions there, Chris? Yeah, I'm checking. Uh, we've got a Dr. Stephen L. Lawson, and we have Stephen Lawson. And I'm trying to hear his voice. Steve, Steve Lawson. Yeah, oh, you're checking him out to see the information Is about him? Is this the same voice? Pastor Richard Caldwell. Um, I first met him Let in me the Master's Seminary here. in the Doctor of Ministry program. That, that, sounds, that, sounds, that sounds like a young man. Right that no one can yeah. enter into... The book of that's Psalms him. I, I believe it's him. Immediately. <laughs> yeah, that's him. Okay, now he's not. He's. You have to go to the L's. Otherwise, well, you're gonna guy, get a the, doctor. The, I know. I know the video. If you want to know what he looks like and what he looks, just go to the information box. I can. I will tell you what. I will send it to this guy. I, I got it here too. Yeah. So, so if you want to hear and listen to him, you know he's an older man. He's an older man, so he's not some young punk, or young punk, I should say, some young man. <laughs> yeah, this, I think this is him. It sounded like him. Now, there's a picture of him doing uh, doing a conference, or, or doing just doing a sermon. With He's an older man, mm-hmm. and uh, but the doc, there's a doctor. Uh, I'm sure that's Bob, him. He's got a he's middle been... initial, and I'm going to hear him and see if that... But no, it sounded like him. It said... You're going to have to go if you go if you want to hear him on sermon it's audio. Steve is it's not listed as a. You've got to go to the L's. You've got to go to the L's, the letter L, and he'll be he'll be right next to the one that's featured. It's Doctor Stephen Initial Lawson. I don't think that's him because when we heard his voice when on this test trial, he sounds just like the guy you produced. So this is your, I can hear him right now again and see if that yeah. in fact him. Steve. Anyways, the important thing is not him, it's the message, so. <laughs> yeah, that's him. But, but again, brothers, if you want to hear him, you got to go to the letter L. You know how you go to the speakers, sermon by speakers, and then mm-hmm. it's got all these browse speakers, and it's got featured broadcasters, classic speakers, official broadcast speakers, and so on. You're going to have to go to the letter L that precedes the, uh, that precedes, like, like, for example, Lawson or or L, you're not going to find him here in the in the first on the first page of speakers because there's so many speakers. You're going to have to dig him out of the L, uh, just like any any letter. You know, if there's somebody that you want to find yeah, well, and he's not listed as featured on the first page of speakers, you just go to the L or the letter of his name and and find him that way. Understand? Yeah, but that sounded like him. That little, that one, that little example I gave. That sounded just like him. So he's not the one. Well, I'm sure he's there. Yeah, he. No, that's him. That's him. I, yeah. it sounds like his voice, and he he looks like an older man as well, probably 55 or so. And uh, but no, he sounds really good. Yeah. I, I like he's authored. He's authored some books, and I'm sure he's got a PhD. And I'm sure we could find a lot of things to. Not uh, agree with them or like them, <laughs> but you know what? I'm just going back to the thing. The message. The message was a wonderful message, and it was one of the best ones that I've heard about. I couldn't uh, explaining the New Testament and what uh, the role of Jesus Christ is in our lives, and what He's done for us, His elect, those who actually have 
that God's given even the belief in him and uh, the distinction between God's elect and the rest of the world. Yeah. And, when you, yeah. and the other thing is, is uh, this whole thing about the, you know, the reality of whether anybody wants to hear it or like it, there is a hell. And for the majority of the people that we even know and care about, well, we're going to end up there with Satan and his minions. So. And it's not something that I or anybody goes wish on, as Chris has mentioned numerous times, but it is the reality. And being the elect, and because we believe in Jesus Christ, what he's done for us, he's given that to us, and the majority of the world doesn't, and I think it's a joke, he's a joke. Uh, the world's a joke. You know, how, how, does one, how does one operate in the world um, that is that I used to be a part of until he drew me out? <laughs> well, they operate the same way we all operate in it, uh, oblivious. The truth. Yeah, but we're not, we we're not. We're not. We're not. No, not, not now. But we were just like as others. Yeah, that's what I said. And um, I don't know. Walt, what do you think? I mean, because uh, I mean, you know, Walt, we know a lot of things, don't we? That the world doesn't know. And how do we operate? How are we going to operate in this world? Knowing what we know now. Well, it's a day by day. Uh, you know, walk, and uh, I, 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 I think we're, we're just we're getting our legs. You know, in other words, I mean, this is you know, I, I, I do, I do understand what it means to be born again. When I'm when I people when I hear people that are all caught up in the law and, and the Sabbath and they, like look at the Adventists, the Adventists are just swallowed up in Arminianism plus their Putting under the, they're put under the burden of the law. Yeah. You know, what it does for me, what it's been doing for me is, is, is just like Chris asked me a little while ago. It's like, I, I, it's like I'm having to take a little time out. Uh, you, you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm having to take a little time out because uh, I'm, I'm getting kind of... Uh, I've just been filled to the to the brim, and I'm kind of overflowing, you know. Yeah, I do understand mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. That's that's or that aspect of the you know, part of the aspect is to come to realization that we are part of the elect, the part of God's children, and His family, His friends, His brother, and somewhere had to learn how to to live with each other. You know what I mean? Because He is only given each other in this world to tolerate this world. So in other words, you know, you, I, Chris, whoever, are going to have to, you know, the brothers in Christ are going to have to learn how to love and live with each other in our differences and all that. In, in other it's words, very you, fascinating because, you, know, you know, we're not part of the world. So it's like we're, they're not going to accept us at all. We've no. got this crazy situation where he brings us together to learn how to accept each other, love each other, tolerate each other, whatever it may be. Um, you know what I'm saying? Uh, because we we have, outside of Christ, all we have on this earth is each other. Is life, right. That's and, right. And 
I just want to say, can you hear me, uh, Michael? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, it's good to hear from you tonight, Andrew. Andrew is guest five. In uh, if you'd like to call in, uh, Andrew, uh, I don't know if you have a unlimited long distance, but uh, you know, I'm just, I just feel really blessed that uh, uh, that you know that, that we have a handful. That we have a handful. That, in other words, in other words, I don't, I, 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 I don't want to really. I have no, I have no problems. And this is how, if somebody wants to keep the Sabbath, I have no problems. I, I, I'm going to be just like uh, Dale Phillips. I'm going to just say, I love you, but we disagree. You know, because there's a lot of people that are just so adamantly, you know, and and it, it's it, you, you know, you have to, you have to. Uh, it's the Seventh Day Adventists that have, and uh, in, in, in the, the Seventh Day Adventists don't only preach half of the Reformation. They don't, <clears throat> they don't preach sovereign grace. See, I mean, we we've been led to believe that they're the only ones that are teaching um, Reformation history and stuff, but they're not oh. teach. Don't, they're only teaching half of it. And they're te- they teach about the Antichrist, and they, and, and of course, the, t- t- today, you know, there, there's such a division, and there's so much free <clears throat> Freemasonry. You know, I'm using the Adventists. <coughs> excuse me. You see, I'm not. I'm using the Adventists to 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 share. You know, in other words, I still love the Adventist people. You know, understand, but 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 they have a false doctrine. Yeah, but well, here's a question for you. You know, and, and Chris, maybe you can answer this because you've been doing it a lot longer than maybe the rest of us. Uh, how do you? Are we supposed to love the Adventists? Being God well, elect, the way, are we really yeah, supposed well, to be loving those who are teaching a false gospel? Really? Or are we just supposed to learn how to love each other? Is that enough well, in well, itself? Naturally, love each other, but but we, the, our expression of love is 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 manifest this way. Bring them the gospel, the truth. That's the that's the only love that we can bring to the poor, and the, I'm talking about the poor of spirit. And that's the only thing we can do on their behalf. And if they, you know, and if they reject us twice, I give them twice. You know, I kick the dust. You know, off and go elsewhere. And uh, yeah, we're, we're to love them, but that's the expression of our love. That's the only way we're to love them, because if they're enemies in Christ, they're our enemies. If they hate the truth, they're not free, and they are in bondage, and here we come with a message, and they reject it out of hand. And at that point, our obligation to love them is pretty much, you know, actually imprecatorily, you might even think uh, you'd have a, a godly hatred for him. I don't know. I just no. I don't. Anybody that rejects the gospel, the truth, is God doesn't love them. Well, when he, wait, Chris, Chris, Christ. when God talks, Chris, when uh, you know, talks in, in the Word of God about how uh, you know if we love our parents or our brothers and siblings or our friends more than than God, then uh, we don't have God in us. Is that correct? Well, yeah, if you love any others, you know, 
In other words, we got to put Christ family first. Members. Yeah, you can have a harder time with family members and just strangers, you know. Oh yes, oh yes, we do. We all know that, but no, that's the <laughs> manifestation of love is is through the uh, is through the, the giving them of the word because they're poor of spirit and we're here to help them, you know, bring them the the truth and they don't want it. If they don't want it and they laugh at us or tell us, oh, go go jump in a lake or whatever, uh, then we're to go. I, I don't know. I don't think in those terms, oh, wa- walking away, I don't think, okay, now I hate them. I'm not going to think like that. I know no, I, I understand. love them. Yeah, I already I extended my love to them. You know? I, and they rejected my love. But I don't, I, don't put, I don't put much stock or thought in my mind that, okay, they, they kicked me out. They don't want to hear. I told them what I, what I know. I told them the truth. And they hate me for it. Just like they hated our Lord, they hate me as well. I know we've all, you know, been the brunt of that. So I don't take it to the point of wasting my time to think that, gee, I've got to put them on my hate list now. I don't think that's my job. Uh, If God somehow uh, uh, providentially puts them in my path again, I'll let them have it again. But at that point, I'm not going to go out of my, my, my way. You know, the Lord says he calls them pigs and dogs, and we're not to throw our, throw our, cast our pearls before swine. We're to use it in a better way and, and go to someone else. We only have so much time on this life, you know, in this life. Yes. But they, they'll trample you underfoot. You know, they'll trample. We're living in a day where you could get grief. And what if you found yourself down in West Hollywood and, he tried to give the message to some some queers, and they they don't want to hear it. And they they'll say something like, well, "Where's the God of Sodom and Gomorrah now?" You know, something real real derogatory. And uh, and you just think to yourself, "Well, just wait." You know, uh, you'll be judged if you don't come out of that debauchery. If you don't if you don't quit that sodomy. You know. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think we have to spend our time. We don't have to spend our time hating them. It's a no, I don't. I, I have no hate list. But I, you know, I can share my my experience with my brother or sister is. Um, I just don't go out of my way to interact too much with them. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm not going to reject them uh, if they were to call me. And I'm certainly going to talk to them. I care about them, but. Um, it doesn't take very much. And now that what I know now, I mean, I don't know what to do. I just don't know what to do about it. I really don't know how to function in the world. <laughs> well, the greatest thing you can ever do is bring the gospel to somebody. That's the greatest gift you can ever give anyone. The greatest thing you can ever share is the good news, the true good news. Right, but they're not going to listen to that, and you know exactly what they you know, God may put it on them to hear to hear it. But I'll tell you what, I found that people that are older than 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 younger people that bring the gospel, older people will condescend and not generally not hear from a younger person. Yes. And especially if they're you're related to them, they certainly won't hear. They'll hear younger people that aren't related to them, but they they don't want to be they don't want to be told anything from a younger sibling that may have yeah. the gospel and try and share the gospel with them, 
No, no, no. it'd be better if, if someone not related to them, preferably older than them, attempts to bring the truth to them. But again, that's all up to God's providence. You know, when I was listening to this guy, I'm thinking, I'm thinking where we're living, and you guys have probably heard this verse in Amos 8:11. And we're living there now, and I think it's all, you know, the new, the new, the last days began at the cross, and we're in it. And behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. That's the famine. Yeah. And you know we're such a remnant, chosen by grace, saved by grace, that uh, they don't want to hear it, and there aren't there aren't that many. Remember, Jesus said the fields are white for gleaning, but where are the gleaners? I'm paraphrasing. But you remember the, a verse like that that the that the that the, the the fields are ripe for harvest. He's telling us as believers that we need to get out there and share the gospel. Yeah. Or, well, and if we're not well, able to well, get out, well, we can well, do it via telephone, you know, with when people call us for, even when I, when I dispute an electric bill, I'll ask them if they're Christians. And half the time they'll say, yeah, and then I'm able to get into it with them. And sometimes they, they, they're they receptive of sermon audio and a particular preacher. I'll generally give them Bill Parker because he never misses giving the, uh, the uh, tenets of of free free grace salvation in a half an hour or less, twenty eight minutes. So Walt, I'll point them there. Walt, you know, if I'm not able to get out there, Walt, I can... Walt, can you can you hear me, Walt? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, I was going to ask you. I mean, what's go back to where you and uh, what you're going through too? Because um, you know we we have mutual old friends that uh, we both lost, and uh, oh, you know, well, what's your take on all this? You know what I mean? Go back to your time. Well, well, I, I think we got to first uh, look at the reality. I mean, we have been uh, two months ago. We didn't know the gospel, and uh, you know, and uh, I believe uh, I can't speak for everybody. I'm not speaking for everybody. I'm speaking for myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, uh, you know, I. I wrote a little piece on the Adventist, you know, I, I shared that with you guys. And, and I, I don't think I'm, I, I, you know, on reason I'm not trying to pick on the Adventist, but I'm using it as an example of the great apostasy because, you know, the reason I, I'm mentioning the Adventists is because they're number two. They're number two. They're the second largest denomination underneath the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. And, and, and let's face it too, Walt. Also, they 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 did infect us, and they they did uh, you know because of our journeys, we shared it with them. You know what I mean? So it does mean something to us, you know. And uh, uh, you, you, yes, in other words, uh, are you you know, uh, if you love somebody, you'll chase. You know, God chases who he who he loves. You know, and uh, you know, in other words, you. I mean, uh, in other words. Uh, you know, it's like raising your son. When you see him do something dangerous or something, you know, you you chasing him because you don't want him to hurt you. You know, you don't want him to be hurt. And that's you know, uh, uh, I mean, I think of uh, uh, you know, I use uh, 
of Walter Veith. I mean, I've heard Walter Veith actually, you know, <clears throat> you know, actually really kind of declare universalism, you know, and, uh, and one thing I noticed in this, and I don't want to sound like I'm running this man down because his message was great, but, you know, I'm, I'm not going to back off and uh, back off of this because it's very important. And, you know, this is not a planet, you know, and that's, and, you know, if I, I would talk to this man right here, I would, I would sit him right down and, 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 and you know, and, and, you know, this is not a planet because I, I mean, I, now this man, now this man that was giving the speech tonight, it's a real good chance that he's heliocentric. It was probably a really good chance. I mean, let's face it, Walsh, how many people understand? Yeah. What well, we well, understand? well, because, <laughs> no, no, but am I, am I going to, it, it is important. It is important because, uh, and the reason why he's heliocentric is because the whole academic world, he's got, he's got a doctor's, you know, it's Dr. Lawson. And so, no, listen, no, he's... No, 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 that's the other guy. That's the doctor. No, 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 I, 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 I pulled up the YouTube. I pulled up the YouTube. Okay, he's and, a doctor uh, as well. Both Lawsons are doctors, okay. Yeah, yeah, it, Steve Lawson, The Sovereignty of God, Session 3, The Definite Atonement. For whom did Christ die? That's what we listened to tonight, right, Michael? Yes. Yeah. No. No. He. He's. He's got a. He's got a. No. Maybe. I'm, uh, down in the. Where did I see that? Uh, uh, well, you know, the, the, the truth is, Walt is whether you have a doctor's degree or no degree at all. The majority of people, the vast majority, we're like ninety something percent. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because because of the education that they received, and they never questioned that. And so, you right. know, as we go through our journey and walk with the Lord here and uh, the straight, narrow path, the pilgrim's progress, if you will, uh, you know, we're going to find a lot of things that even we believed in were wrong, and there's a lot of people believe in are wrong. And I agree with you, it's important to, to correct people on, you know, not calling it a planet. But at the same token, it's, we're going to deal with the fact that there's people <laughs> that understand other things and aspects of life that don't understand what we understand. So, you know, yeah, well, and, and, and one thing that, you know, the question you're, you know, that, that has really come to me uh, is, you know, once I see this truth, once I understand for the first time in my life, I'm 71 years old, and I realized that I had been listening to an Armenian gospel all my life. Yeah. You know, and uh, like Dale I, I don't, like we talked to uh, Mr. Phillips, you know, who's 87 years old, and uh, I forget the question that Larry gave him. You were you were there, Chris. Uh, he gave him the question, you know, what what must you do? And, he, and his answer was to be born again, you know. And I see, I'm not going to mention any names, but I've I've associated with people that are so hardened on this. They're so hardened on on this. Uh, on this Sabbath, I mean, it's 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 just you know ingrained into them. And in in other words, and you see, for me now, for me, I, I go to Galatians uh, five one. You know, you know. In other words, if you read all of Galatians, I don't, I can't see how anybody could read Galatians word for word, like Chris and I did on on the air, and listen to what Paul is saying here in Galatians. 
and then come to Galatians 5.1, and it says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. <clears throat> and I think that bondage, he's talking about Paul right there, is the, is the bondage of law. Your comment, uh, Chris? Yeah, it is the law that, that uh, people try to hold to, and it disrupts the whole grace thing in their life. And it, it's not not anything that we... And, and it was... It was so clear when Chris and I, I mean, I read it and Chris would stop and he'd comment and stuff, but, when, you know, and, and all of a sudden that, you know, I see people, I, I, I have, I had that up on my, on Grand Design Exposed. I got, I got that verse, but, you know, I never really understood, you know, you, you know, you, you really, to understand Bible verses, you need to, to, to read the whole chapter. See and what you know. In other words, in, that, in other words, in, in in this case, to understand what what Paul is talking about here, you have to read the all the Galatians before it. There's six chapters in Galatians. See, you know, and I just cannot see how anybody anybody could read Galatians and not come by and realize that you know what 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 Paul says. You know, you know. He says, you know, you know. Yeah. Well, I think one thing. I'm certainly I'm grateful that uh, God has brought people like Chris and Larry and you and uh, Jerry and others in, in our lives. You know. Well, and and Jerry, yeah. and Jerry and Larry, uh, and Chris, they're just as happy. Chris is, you know, he sits he sits down there on top of the grapevine and. You know, it, it, he, he, you know, and in other words, it's not when we start looking around. It's not somebody's imagination. It's just not in these churches. You know, you're just not going to w- walk upon a church that, that that preaches the gift of the gift of sovereign grace. It's you know, I mean, you know, it's in, because one of the reasons is. Why these men are heliocentric is because they go to a Bible uh, Bible college and they go to uh, a seminary. Yeah. And if they go to a Bible college or a seminary, they're not teaching the gift of sovereign grace. You know, and the truth of it is, the Adventists are Arminians. I mean, I'm talking about the Adventist the Adventist uh, doc, uh, doctrine. Is they're Arminians. And you know, and and plus, plus they put put people under the bondage, you know. And 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 I don't say this, but you know, like like uh, Walter Vyth. I'm not saying this was malice, but Walter Vyth only teaches half the truths about the Reformation. He leaves out the gift of sovereign grace. That's half of what the Reformation was built on, not just the. <clears throat> The Antichrist. Matter of fact, I I was taught for the last year, last eight years, that that was the most impart, important part, and that the gospel, you know, that people already knew Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, you know, come to find out about it, I mean, yes, the gospel is is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but the definition. Is in Paul, and then you just you know here months ago you know we've all been learning, Michael. It's 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 
you know, and I, I tried to share this with uh, Chris earlier, is, you know, I, I'm kind of, I'm, uh, how did you say that, how did you say it, Chris, that I'm, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I, I got to, actually, Chris explained, <laughs> explained what I'm going through better than I could myself. You there, Chris? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, uh, yeah, one of the things is you know, come to this realization, as we talked about numerous times now in the past couple months, is the, the fact that uh, the world and the apostate Christendom, the Armenians, do not like John and do not like Paul. They do not like those men's teachings, you know, and so they avoid it as much as possible, unless it, you know, they'll cherry pick, but they won't read the whole teachings of these two men because... I think now you and I know why now. Yeah, you, you know, uh, uh, there's something I want to get into, and I did one time, but uh, Andrew brought it to my attention. Uh, is this? Uh, is this? Uh, is un? How, how do you say that? Uh, oh yeah, or or uh, or, or Orion. How do you spell? How do you pronounce O R I O N? Orion? Is, is, is that right? Uh, is that how you say it, uh, Andrew? Because Andrew's listening. O-R-I-O-N? Or it's Orion? O-R-I-O-N. Yeah, Orion. O- That's right. Orion. Orion. Okay, Orion is where... See, see now, if I... You know, um, uh, Andrew could explain this better because he's, he's, uh, he's read on this more than I have. But in other words, see, that's... See that gives. I mean, it's it's something to do with with life on other planets. See, I mean, they actually they actually believe. You know, I I just found, you know, they they're that that's why that's why uh, you know that Walter Weiss is so adamantly and he always talks about the planet planet Earth and planet. See, because because uh, he you know that it you know another in, in other words, and I don't think I'm off base by saying this. You know, Walter, 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 the the, the Walter Vive, are 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 are. They're they they're not preaching the gospel, the gift of sovereignty. They're not preaching. So so, in, and I can actually say this: that the Adventists, you know, are not getting the true gospel. And I can say for myself, you know, two months ago, you know, I didn't know what the true, what the true gospel was, but this yeah. sermon we heard, what we heard, the sermon we heard just now, I mean, he was staying right. And, and like, and I think that's the right attitude that we have to have. Uh, Michael, in other words, yes, I mean, just because I disagree because he believes in heliocentric, am I going to throw everything out that he says? Absolutely not, because he's talking about the most important thing. See, yeah. he's talking, he, he he delivered the gospel to us tonight, you know? Yeah. And I think Chris must have fell asleep. Are you there, Chris? Chris? Are you there, Chris? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you got a phone call or something. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you know, it's it's. I 
it was a heck of a message. So that's for certain. That's why I felt like sharing it, and I thought it was a, it was worthy of sharing. I do appreciate the fact that you, Chris, stuck around to listen. I hope I didn't thank Chris in any way, but <laughs> I didn't mean no, to. I was just trying to get get the, the, all three of us interacting here, and I know everyone had certain things on their mind. So, but um, yeah, I mean, I thought it was a great message. I thought. I, I never heard such a message before in my life. So I think even his explanation, explanation of Tulip and how it uh, even revolves around uh, the Godhead and, you know, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost and everything, you know, just, uh, and it's all about the atoning sacrifice of our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't, I think he did a great yeah. job. Yeah, well, I do too. And, you know, uh, one one thing, uh, you know, that, I, that I've been humbled about is, is uh, you know, it is important to to understand the prophecies in the Re- Reformation and Revelations and in Revelation 17. Is yes, we're not you know, but the most important part is the gospel. Man, that's that is not that. That's why we see what we see today in America in the world. Because yeah, you, and, if not, you, and if you do, if you do understand truly understand the gospel, then you can't get suckered into all the distractions out there, like maybe right. what's going on right. in the Middle East and what's going on here, there, and everywhere. You know, you can stay you stay focused on what we're supposed to stay focused on, and which is you know, obviously our Lord Savior Jesus Christ. <laughs> because uh, <clears throat> you know, because yeah, we're we stay focused, and uh, you know, um, it's just like we're talking a little earlier, you know, talking about the world scene, it's nothing but a stage. When you turn, I mean, especially, you know, it wasn't so, you know, you take 50 years ago, it wasn't so so completely staged. But to, to, to today with the advent of the TV and uh, satellite, you know, uh, connection and, and and everything, you know, and with the new TV, you know, the new 65-inch screens. I mean, I mean, the, I mean, I mean, it's they could never carry on. And this, this is what causes the, the theatrics. Because when people go to the nightly news, you know, they actually think think they're 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 watching some news, and it's all it is is, is theatrics. Yeah, it's so odd. There's, 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 there's nothing. There's, there's nothing. There's no reality in the nightly news. I mean, no. we, we, you know, no, you know the, uh, the like what's going on in, in Israel. You know, I mean, you know, the people that are so pro-Israel, if they could just go over there and go through the checkpoints. I have not been there, but I have a friend that's been there, that has went through the checkpoints. And actually lived with the Palestinians for three, four days. And if if the average person, I mean, that's reality. And his his description of what's going on over there, when he visited as a tourist, it's it, it, you know it's beyond it's beyond wickedness. A living that hell. It's a it's living, a living hell, hell. With a yes. bunch of godless people. People don't even realize that. What, how can you yeah. say that? It's God's chosen people. No. God's chosen no. people is elect, and it has nothing to do with whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Or wait, you're... Yeah. 
You there, back? Yes. You back with us, Chris? Chris, are you okay? At least let us know you're okay. Chris. He couldn't have got a tel- telephone call because he's on the yeah. telephone. <laughs> Am I muted or unmuted? You're, you're unmuted now. Well, at least we are you're, alive. You're, you're, That's good. Good. We we're worried. Of, starting to worry about you. Maybe you might have had a problem there. <laughs> have you been listening? Chris, Chris, you just muted yourself again. Okay, oh, now am I muted or unmuted? You're unmuted. You're unmuted. Okay, you can hear me now. Okay, okay. Yeah, no, I've been listening the whole time, guys. At the same time, I've been researching the Steve, the Stephen, Stephen Lawson, as opposed to Stephen L. Lawson. They look just alike, except the one we heard is is real good, and he's and he's got no initial, and he, I don't think he's a doctorate. But he look, these guys look very similar, and one's in British Columbia, and the other one I think is I think the good one is is not, is like forty miles from my house. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, that's why I was fascinated, and I, well, I so I wanted to hear and make sure this is the same one. But I'll no, I, I, I well, do a little more research on this. Well, this fellow, this guy, this man we were listening to tonight, he mentioned that he was out of country. So oh, he was out of country. Well, he was in London right at the time doing a session. I don't know if he teaches yeah. there or not. He might teach no, there no, he, he was in British Columbia at a conference. That's uh, I think that's all. I think he's I think he's from Sun Valley, California. I mean, I'll I'll find him too. I'll well, I just yeah. Just remember, you, 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 there's a Stephen Lawson and a Stephen L or a Stephen initial Lawson, and and the one. You got to go to the L's, and where it says more, there's more of that letter, just like any other letter in the alphabet. That's what. See, you're only seeing about a. Uh, well, it says 8%. here. It says Doctor Stephen J. Lawson. No, no, that that isn't the guy. The guy we want has no initial and is not necessarily a doctor. Actually, on the YouTube channel and from the. Uh... I think the they made a mistake. Description box. They're saying it's Doctor Stephen J. Lawson. I, I don't know. Man, all I know I'm is the sure message. Only because he's so close. I mean, he may be so close to me, 50, 40 miles away, uh, or so, forty-five. I, I, I was just trying to see, but it looks like he's part of this. Well, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter who he trucks with. I mean, I see Legionnaire Ministry, but one is definitely Dr. Stephen J. Lawson, and there's also Steve Steve Lawson, and we heard Steve Lawson. Okay. So, uh, anyway, that, there's a, that's a little bit of a, and this says Stephen Lawson, the Sovereignty of God, Session 3, Definite Atonement, for whom did Christ die? And uh-huh. now but below it, it says Dr. Stephen J. Lawson. And on Sermon Audio, there's two of them, and one has a J in the middle and is a doctorate. So I have to research this a little bit more. But if he's down in uh, the Sun Valley, that's near uh, that mega church that belongs to, uh, well, it's supposed to belong to God, but the, the, the preacher there is, you've heard of him, he's, uh, he's sort of a, I always called him a fence-sitter, I'm talking about John MacArthur. Yeah, you know, yeah. and you've heard of John MacArthur, but uh, he's and down by the, there. By the way, he does mention him in that that session, the series of the. It was part one or he two. He mentioned MacArthur. 
Uh, well, he may be conferencing. He may be from B- British Columbia. I'm not. I'm not sure. I just would have to look into this some more. But frankly, I'm happy with our with our own house church and everything. I don't need to drive. I'm not. I'm. I don't need to. I, I'm not. I'm not mandated by God to go to a church on Sunday. That's well, law stuff. What is? What does it mean to you, Chris, to uh, be obedient to God? What does that mean to you? I'm not saying that going to church is part of it. I'm just saying, what does it mean to you? Because he did bring it up, you know. Once, once you oh, are, uh, you know, adopted and saved and and then taken into the family of uh, Christ's family, one of the elect, and then it, he, he, his argument is then you need to start walking the straight and narrow path. And what does it mean to be obedient to Christ? Well, to God. To love, and to, love, to, he love, says to Heavenly Father and His laws. He's, it means to love God first and foremost, and love you guys, whom God has put in my I, in my path, and to love you guys as much as I love myself, and appreciate the fact that God's given me brethren such as yourselves to uh, fellowship with, uh, you know, and because of technology, we're able to do that. So that's what it means is to to to, to love God, you know. The, it's really the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments. But again, we can't keep that perfectly. So, and in this Seventh Day Adventist thing, where they think they have. You know, it's funny, they just, is that the fourth commandment, keep the Sabbath day holy? That's just part of the law. If they're going to do that, then they need to keep the other nine commandments perfectly. Why do they put this, uh, why do they stress the uh, fourth commandment? Uh, God didn't didn't give a, oh, you know, I think Ellen G. White saw something around the fourth commandment in some kind of vision. You know who she is? She's, a seven, she's the seventh-day Adventist woman, and... She said she saw a halo around the fourth commandment somewhere, sometime, a long time ago or something. And, you know, Boulder Dash, it's just, you know, but, but and, and then she started her religion over it. And that's the, that's that church. You know, Alina, do you know Alina and Martin in England? I do not. Well, she called me, she, uh, uh, Walter, you do. And she called me today and I, I think they're seven day Adventists, but they don't go to church. So I think they're 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 easing off the subject matter of the stressing of the of the you know Seven Day Adventist uh, uh, mandate of going on Saturday like the Jews did, and yeah, there is no law. We're free in Christ, you know, and uh, do you know I, I can only do the best I can given my such, such as you. You know, you can only do the best you can with your malady, and I have maladies, and I can't. You know, that's why I'm very thankful that we have, uh, we're able to fellowship, you know, by way of technology. I can't do much anymore. You know, I'm not able to. And you understand that yourself. You can, you can empathize with that. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I definitely uh, can. <laughs> yeah, I would love to go down there to, uh, and look at 48 the 48-year-old man going on 78. Yeah, well, there. Yeah, I'm the same thing. I'm 61 and going on 90. You know, the doctor said I had an 80 year old neck, and I think it's you know, and I'm and they told me that a couple years ago. You know. <laughs> well, well, gentlemen, we'll stay on and talk, but I'm just going to end the recording here. So, okay.